welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. A number of years ago when Don, Karen, Hope and myself were talking about the possibility of us coming out here to, to uh, join you at Gateway, one of the promises I remember unequivocally from Don was we will always have lovely summers. <laughs> That's fallen down. No, it's coming. Well, let's hope so. Good to see you. Lovely to have you with us. And uh, as Dawn said, this, this week we continue, continue our summer series. And the theme this year in our morning gatherings is revivals, great revivals throughout history. We, we take the opportunity during the summer to do something different, to look at life, to look at scripture, to look at the things of God perhaps in a, in a different way. Don began last week and he introduced the subject of revival and I am continuing today by looking at the Welsh revival. What else? It really had to be. No one else wanted to do it. So I have to say that although it's a a subject I have studied about, read much about, I have been to the places that it took place, I have been influenced by my my family, my grandparents and and my culture. This is the very first time that... uh, I've ever spoken on it, so it's been a real challenge for me. What do I put in? What's interesting to me? What's not going to be interesting to you? So hopefully in the next 30 minutes or so, we'll come to some agreement that we perhaps got the things right. But the way that I've chosen to approach this morning's message is to, first of all, to give a a brief history of the Welsh Revival, and then to further develop some of the main themes that come out of the, the Revival by asking two questions, which may be interchangeable, but I just want to ask the following two questions. What do revivals tell us about God, and what is God trying to tell us through revivals? What do revivals tell us about God, and what is God trying to tell us through revivals? The Welsh revival of 1904-1905 has been called one of the greatest revivals in history, and one of the most dramatic in terms for its effect not only on the local population, but it went on to trigger uh, global spiritual awakenings that would spread across the globe from Russia to Scandinavia, North America, South America, Africa, and Asia. It was one of the greatest in the history of, of, of the church. Some people have said that it was uh, as great as the day of Pentecost, that in fact its impact was far greater even than the day of Pentecost. But who knows? But one of the key things to understand about the Welsh Revival is that not only did it obviously take place in Wales, but the Welsh Revival took part, or took place, I should say, in the Welsh language. That is key to start to understand it. Most people that you meet today, like ourselves, uh, Welsh should be our, our first language, our mother tongue. But when you talk about the Welsh revivals, it, is, it was all done in the language of Welsh. People who were doing the speaking were doing so in Welsh. People who were primarily were getting saved were doing so through their mother tongue of Welsh. English would have been spoken in the services that there were visitors there who did not understand English. And English would have been the, the language of the media, of the, of the newspaper that covered the revival. But everything else was done in Welsh. To further understand something of the Welsh revival is to see that, that at that time there were two opposing if I can put it like this, religious cultures that were in tension, that were, that were clashing. Firstly, at the back of the, the 19th century, 
Wales had gone through and experienced a real spiritual and theological decline, and there had been a rise in biblical criticism and theological debate. Preachers openly from the, from the pulpit undermined the authority of God, and they taught the teachings of Christ as just another wise philosopher rather than the almighty son of God. The publishing of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859 was also making a huge impact in undermining the effect of the faith of many in Wales. It was being taught in the schools and it was in society. It was the subject of much debate. It was undermining people of faith. However, counteracting this was the dawn of a new century. And with the dawn of a new century, the churches in, in Wales and throughout the rest of the United Kingdom had an incredible sense of anticipation. There was a real sense of anticipation that God was going to do something new in this century. And actually, that was quite, quite a strong feeling across the globe. And out of this anticipation of God doing something in the new century, there were lots of prayer groups, lots of prayer movements set up, lots of churches devoted days and weeks and months and years to pray that God would do something as we broke into the 20th century. So you had the undermining of the faith, and yet you had this real surge of faith through prayer. And these were two things in tension at this time. So as you come to the Welsh revival itself, many who know about the Welsh revival, the name Evan Roberts will be familiar and synonymous, really, as the leader of the, of the Welsh revival. And it was true that he was the most popular evangelist in the revival, but he is also, if you do spend time reading about him, he was one of the most enigmatic, the most puzzling, one of the most mysterious figures in the whole of church history. Roberts was not a dynamic leader or in any way a charismatic figure. And by many, they didn't actually consider that he could preach very well. He was not a great orator. He was quiet, he was retiring, and didn't fulfill the traditional perception of what a leader of an incredible revival should look like. He would never announce where he was going to be speaking because he didn't want to be seen as the star of the revival. He didn't, it didn't go in the newspapers. He didn't tell anybody where he was going, just that he went. And wherever he went, the people went and the revival took place. Quite a refreshing aspect of his life, to be honest. And the fact is that he didn't want to be the star of what God was doing in the midst of his people. He, Evan Roberts, after the Welsh revival, he actually had a, a mental and a, a nervous breakdown. And shortly after the end of the Welsh revival, he went, into, went to live in England, where he spent most of his time for the rest of his life just praying and seeking the face of God. He was never to marry, he was never to have children. But after 04 or 05, he went really into, into isolation. One thing to, interesting to note, though, that during the, the late 1920s, I think it was 1927, 1928, he came back to Wales for his father's funeral. And he hadn't spoken in Wales since the Welsh revival. And those who were there, eyewitnesses to the report, said as soon as he stood up and started to preach, the power of God fell in that meeting again. And something of the revival awakening that had happened in 04 or 05 started to happen again. But because of his, his illness and his health and his mental state, he couldn't, couldn't stay, so it didn't continue. What was unique about Evan Roberts was that from an early age, when he worked down the coal mine, first of all as a young boy and then later as a blacksmith, 
He came to know Christ as his savior at 13 years of age, but he was well known as a, as a young man who had an incredible love of the word of God and an incredible desire to see Wales reached through revival. And for 13 years, he prayed for this. And when he was just 26, God answered his prayer. So often we think of revivals in isolation. Here's this guy and his friends praying for 13 years, regularly, week in, week out, for, for revival to happen. However, just prior to the outbreak of the revival and before his day of destiny drew near, God revealed himself to Evan Roberts in an incredibly special way. At the age of 25, one year before the revival, he woke up one night and found himself, it was one o'clock, he remembers quite vividly, he found himself in the presence of God. And he said, I met with God in my bedroom. He said, God was so real. He said this, I found myself with unspeakable joy and awe in the presence of the Almighty God. I was privileged to speak face to face with him as a man speaks face to face with a friend. This deep communion went on for about four hours and he, and he fell back to sleep at about five o'clock. And then he was surprised that the next night exactly the same thing happened. That he woke at one o'clock, he met with God, he talked with him and he fell asleep at five o'clock. This continued for the next three months every, every night as God revealed himself in an incredibly dramatic fashion to Evan Roberts. And understandably, this had a huge impact on Evan Roberts and ultimately the, the Welsh revival. Although, as I said, not known as a, as a great speaker, Roberts was an incredible man of prayer and incredibly powerful in the moving of the gifts of wisdom and the gifts of knowledge. And he's, he was, without, without doubt, the man who carried the revival. The stories surrounding the revival itself are truly amazing. As I said, with estimates that number, somewhere in the region of 150,000, maybe 175,000 people getting saved. You know, the population of Wales then was under two million. So if you think about 150 up to 175,000 people getting saved, that was an incredible outpouring. And the stories of that time, the stories that revolve around the around the Welsh Revival are pretty well known, but they are so incredible, I just want to tell some of those stories again. First of all, the crime rate dropped. The police said the busiest thing that they had to do, most of their time was spent making sure that everybody got to the church services and went home safely. Work, uh, the police work dropped completely. The work of judges the courts were often closed. You know, we know that Jesus turned water into wine. There was a thing going around in the Welsh revival that beer turned, beer turned into clothes. Jesus turned water into wine, but the Welsh revival turned beer into clothes because such was the desire of people to turn away from their old life of, of hard drinking. A lot of these people were coal miners and the families of coal mining. Alcohol was probably one of the very few respites they had from, from an incredible difficult life. But because of the power of God and people were getting saved, people were turning away from that lifestyle. And for the first time, probably in generations, families were well fed, families had clothes. Thus it came about that the Welsh revival turned beer into clothes. Don mentioned this one last week, pit ponies. They were so used to being kicked and thrashed and swore at in Welsh that when the revival took place and the language tidied up and people stopped swearing and they stopped kicking animals to get them to work, the pit ponies had to be retrained. 
the, the, uh, there was a figure I read about the drop in consumption of, of or consumption of the um, getting of coal. Can't remember the phrase, but the, the production of coal dropped because they had to retrain a lot of the ponies in order to carry the coal. The national newspaper published the revival editions. This is a secular newspaper produced revival editions. And this is uh, one of the most incredible sites. If you ever go to Wales and you go to the um, some of the old chapels, and they have like wooden pews. Some of them would be oak, some of them would be pine. But if you go to some of the chapels where the revival was, now I'm going to use a phrase, I hope this translates, hobnail boots. Do you know what I mean by hobnail boots? And they were work boots and they had nails to help you grip. If you go to some of these Welsh chapels and you look on the pews, you will see the indentation from when the miners, when the Spirit of God would come upon them, they would get up on their, on their pews and they would dance. And you can see the marks and the devastation that they caused on these, on these wooden pews. But even to today in some of those, those chapels, you can still see the marks of where these miners just danced and praised the Lord. Truly incredible. This one is, this next one's really pathetic. It was, um, this is where the Holy Spirit, I think, just came and got two pastors and knocked their heads together. But there's a little, there's a little town in South Wales, I won't even pronounce it, it's well known that these two churches, I think it had become a thing of pride for them that they hadn't spoken to each other for 12 years. Spirit of God, they were both in the same street. Spirit of God fell upon both of the little Welsh chapels and there was reconciliation. And they shook hands for the very first time the pastors did in 12 years. Such was the power of what was happening. Converted prostitutes just joined together to hold Bible studies. Remarkable and amazing things went on as a consequence of the Welsh Revival. And it is difficult for us to really comprehend to the degree which the, to the degree that the Revival actually changed Wales. It changed it in every aspect. Wherever it went, it touched people. Wales was truly a changed nation. And perhaps the most dramatic change that took place was in the work and in the lives of the miners and their families. I don't know if any of you have ever been down a mine. I don't know if you've ever been, we as a family a number of years ago went down, there's a show mine, but it, it used to be a working mine. And you go in, and you know you get the phrase pitch black? That's where it comes from, down the coal mines. They close the door, they turn the lamp off, and you cannot see anything. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. Such were the conditions that these guys worked in. No wonder they were hard, no wonder they were crass, no wonder they lived a lifestyle that was a away from God, hard and hardened men, working in terrible conditions, touched by the grace and mercy of a loving God, which overflowed then to their families and to the surrounding areas. Some of the things that happened as a result, family devotions, public prayer meetings were started and that went on for years and years. The sales of Bibles, they just could not print enough. Such was the demand for Bibles. Everywhere you went, as it were, throughout Wales, there was a spirit of prayer, a spirit of urgency to, to preach the gospel. The effects of the revival started to overflow, and as I said earlier, it went across the world. But to start with, it went throughout England and Scotland and Ireland, and such great historical godly men, some of you will have heard these, Gypsy Smith, F.B. Mayer, G. Campbell Morgan, all came to see and testify to the power and wonder of what they saw an incredible period in the, in the history of the church. 
So I just want to ask us some questions quickly around what does that tell us about God? And what do we learn about God from the revival? What's he wanted to say to us? First of all, I want to start by saying I believe that God is attracted to holiness and holiness always accompanies revival. We know that God is a a holy God and if our lives have something of his touch upon us, holiness will be a byproduct. But whenever you, you mention Holiness, it's, sometimes people get a, a little bit nervous, a couple of reactions, well, well, don't go religious on me, I want to live my life as I want to. And then the second thing that happens is that people sometimes become aware, not always, but sometimes become aware of maybe issues in their life that they, they do need to face up to and they do need the challenge. However, it is clear, whenever you want to talk about revival, you have to talk about holiness, a turning away from, from sin to holiness, and from sin to God. This was clear throughout the Welsh Revival. Don made reference to it last week when he said that, when he talked about revival, he says, to revive what once was already there and then to flow out from there to touch the world that was around. And that was very much a a strong message of the Welsh Revival. Holiness and judgment starts in the house of the Lord. It starts there. Four square, it starts with us, and then it flows out from there. This was key to the, to the Welsh revival. Starting in the house of God, then flowing out to a watching world. As I said, whilst Evan Roberts was no great orator, he was unequivocal in his message. And when he did speak, he usually spoke around these four points. Confession of all known sin. Repentance and Restitution obedience and surrender to the Holy Spirit, public confession of Christ. He was incredibly strong on on all these. And we would say, oh, yes, 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 we we know that and we understand that, the reason for that. But he was really strong uh, in this season of just coming and confessing and just really being open and honest with where we are in our lives. Just the repentance and the, the, the need to go and put right what can be put right. He wasn't just, oh, you stand up and you can just say, well, I'm sorry, and Lord, I repent of this or that. He really felt that people, where necessary, had to go and put things right with whoever they had wronged. Obedience and surrender to the Holy Spirit and the public confession of Christ. I think that's why it's probably spread like nothing else. Just such was the the public confession of Christ. Dr. Michael Brown, in his writings on revivals, talks about this dynamic of holiness and the the presence of God that accompanies revival. He calls it this, God stepping down from heaven and bearing his holy arm. God is in the midst of his people and the Lord is shaking the world. He tells the following story about the, the Welsh revival, but similar stories are common to most revivals actually that I have studied. One day, this sounds so incredibly Welsh because We're not very bright, but this sounds a bit like so Welsh. One day, some visitors were asking directions to the revival meetings in one part of Wales, and they were told, if you go to a certain place and you get off the train, you'll be fine. That's all you need to do. But the visitors replied and said that, how do we know when to get off? What happens if we get off in the wrong place? And the person giving the direction said, you won't get it wrong. And they came back and they said, why won't we get it wrong? And the guy said, because you will feel it. Because 
you will feel it. They arrived at the place and exactly where they were told, they got off and exactly that happened. As soon as they got off the train, they started to feel something of the holiness and the presence of God. They were told to walk then to a certain place and then turn left or turn right, but there came this saying, when you get there, you'll know that it's the right place. And again, they, say, they replied, how do we know when to turn? And the reply came, you will feel it. You will just know. And right when they walked, they got to this place, they just automatically knew when they got there which way to go. They could feel the holiness and the awesome presence of God. Something about holiness and God, holiness and revival that go together. Tangible presence of God is difficult to put into words. But the two go together. Holiness without fail is front and center when revival is present. It's not just the Welsh revival. When Smith Wigglesworth was here in New Zealand, when Smith Wigglesworth was in Wellington in the early 1920s, and he met with local ministers, and the local ministers all came to be with him because of what he was doing and his reputation. And when Smith Wigglesworth started to pray, the power of God felt, and such was the holiness and the presence of God when Smith Wigglesworth prayed, everybody had to leave the meeting save himself. He was now used to the holiness and, the, and, and, and the, the presence of God because he'd walked with it for such a time that he actually was able to stay. But nobody else could stay there. There's something about the holiness of God. I remember myself, nothing at all like that. So I remember back in the mid-90s, remember the Pensacola-Brownsville revival? There was the Toronto and then there was the Brownsville revival. And it was in, it was in Florida. A friend and I went, to, went, to, went over, we just wanted to be part of it. We wanted to go and see what was happening there. And that was all about, about the preaching of the word, the call to salvation, a lot of people getting saved. But as a consequence of that, there, were, there was an incredible sense of holiness and the presence of God. And um, I remember at the end of our first meeting, there was, there was a call just to, just in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit was welcomed. And I, and, and I can't, I'm not just trying to be uh, coy here, but there was nothing major in my life that I thought I really needed to confess. But such was the presence of God. There was something going on in my life that I couldn't really describe. And my friend was with me, but I, we weren't, in that sense, communicating. He was caught up in the things of God, and I was just worshiping. And then I found, found myself going down the front, and I just got on my knees like this. And you know, when you go forward and it's all about holiness, everybody wants to know what you're confessing or what you're really guilty about and what's the sin in your life. Or is that just me? I don't know. And I was, I was like this. And I was just saying, I remember saying to myself, Lord, I can't think of anything. Please don't be fooled. There was plenty. But in the sense, there was nothing major that I felt conviction about. I just said, Lord, I just want to, I just want to kneel here. Whatever you want to do in my life, just, just come and do it. Lo and behold, I opened my eyes and turned to my right, and my mate was, standing, was kneeling next to me. And he went on and told me exactly the same thing. He said, there was nothing really special that I wanted to confess, he said, but I just wanted to get into the presence of God, and if he wanted to challenge me over anything at all, then I wanted to be in that environment. Something about the holiness and revival and the presence of God. Secondly, God, I believe, will both use and transform culture where applicable. Each revival in times past had something of God's unique signature upon it. For example, in the early 90s, the, the Toronto outpouring was very much about rediscovering the, the father heart of God, of God and the joy that went like that with that. The first great awakening was very much revolving around preaching, but the Welsh revival of 1904-05 had a special imprint 
and it was the spontaneous outbreaking of song and the outbreaking of singing of hymns, then followed by prayer, then followed by open repentance and confession. Prayer and confession and salvations in the Welsh revival didn't follow so much the preaching of the word, but followed the singing of lines of songs and the singing of hymns. A line would be sung, a hymn would be sung, the power of God would fall. A song, power of God would come. You know, very kindly, the, the nation of Wales has been called the land of song and a nation of songbirds. And, and Don referred to being at the, the Millennial Stadium when he and Karen were over with us a number of years ago. And it's one of those things, it's, it's actually hard to convey unless you've actually been there, unless you've been in an environment where the Welsh are singing, especially in their own, lang own language, there's something that it really gives you goosebumps. And if you're not musical, you're gonna get lost in the next 30 seconds. But such is the experience in Wales, even today, especially today, you go and in the Welsh, they'll, they'll sing the national anthem and then it'll go into a chorus. There's about 75,000 Welsh people there, and this is probably, there may be, I don't know, military band, but mainly they would do it unaccompanied. And then what they would do, they would come to the third line of the stanza. This is where I'm gonna, if you're not musical, please stick with me. Then they would come unannounced, not rehearsed. They would come this loud crescendo of top tenors just singing the Welsh national anthem and bringing it to an incredible, credible climax. Unrehearsed, just 75,000 Welsh people singing. It's what we do in our culture. And even as I talk about it, it's, it's something that, that actually impacts me. And for Wales, you see, song is not something that we do. It is who we are. It wasn't that we discovered a couple of hundred years ago that, oh, we're rather good at this, so let's do it. It's part of who we are. It's part of our DNA. To, and to understand what is going on here, is in part to recognize that here God, in the midst of the Welsh revival, is using culture, is redeeming culture, and he is healing culture all at the same time. Virtually unique amongst all the people groups of the world, Wales has a history of using song as a primary form of communication. There are some tribes in Africa, I think in Thailand this might be true. You see, the Welsh, when we communicate to ourselves in days gone by, we wouldn't use words, we wouldn't use hand signs, we wouldn't use facial indications like the Filipinos do. The Welsh would sing to each other as the primary language, a way of communicating. We would sing to each other. It goes, it says here, the Welsh would use songs and play instruments to communicate to one another. If you go far back into the history of the United Kingdom, in 1187 AD, there are chronicles that tell us that the Welsh communicated primarily through song. When the Welsh were fighting the kings of England in the 11th and the 12th centuries, stories were told by the English armies that they could hear the Welsh singers, fight, Welsh fighters singing 
and it absolutely disorientated them. Jump forward to the Act of Union of 1539, when Henry VIII was trying to unite the English and the Welsh. He was incredibly derogatory about the Welsh language, and this is in the language of the day, it's not misspelled. It's, but Henry VIII, speaking about the Welsh, says, speech nothing like, near consonant to the mother tongue used in this realm. And he declared that Welsh could not be spoken and that the Welsh had to change how they lived. One historian says, the privileges of citizenship were only being given to the Wales or to the Welsh on conditions that they forgot their own particular past and personality, that they denied their Welshness and, excuse me, merged with England. Clearly something that was objectionable to the West. Jump forward again, another couple of hundred years, and two things were happening. We're coming to about 100 years before the outbreak, 50 to 100 years before the Welsh revival. Firstly, there was the rise of the non-conformists, the non-Anglican churches in Wales. Traditional music was frowned upon. Traditional music got shifted to the side in Wales yet again because it was seen as the uh, representative of immorality, of the drinking culture and the drunkenness of the day. So traditional music was then frowned upon. However, as a result of the Methodist revival some 50 years later, music came back on the scene because Wales then became the nation of song again, introducing its choirs, uh, singing its hymns. All this happened and it devastated the Welsh culture. As Wales as a nation and historians tell us at time, Wales as a culture, as a people, as a nation, as a speaker of non-English language, it was a nation of insecurity, of doubt, of corporate timidity, and it was an incredibly confused and broken landscape into which the Holy Spirit broke and used song to redeem a nation. You know when we pray about Lord come and he says I will heal the land? What was happening in the Welsh revival was not just a revival, but there was a healing of the land that had taken place for over a thousand years of just abuse in many ways of a language and a culture and a history and a tradition that had been put down by other nations and because of what had happened. Here God was truly healing the land. And I personally, and maybe I'm just prejudiced because of my Welsh, I don't quite see anywhere else in the history of the church where God heals the land for at least a couple of generations like he did in Wales. And he did it through something that was dear to our culture but that had been damaged and broken. It transformed the land like nothing else. So when people say, oh, Welsh, you, know, you all sing. It's, it's very nice, but it's more than that to us. There was a one particular song that was called the love song of the, of the revival. And we're just going to play about a minute of it. And I've chosen this specially because we'll probably sing it at the end. It's, here is love, vast as the ocean. But they're going to sing it in Welsh. It's Damakariad Veramoroid. And we're gonna, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be sung in Welsh for us. It's going to be a solo. It's going to be a folk. And it's going to be accompanied by the harp. All those we could go into the culture of Wales. And uh, I've chosen a version with the backdrop's a bit strange. But you get to see the Welsh language as well. Okay? So this is going to be quite a cultural experience for you. <laughs>
Completely different language, isn't it? What was really sad there when I was going through it this morning, I noticed a spelling mistake. How sad is that? And how even more sad that I'm telling you that there was a spelling mistake in that. All the, no vowels. It's like, if you want to see a vowel, don't come to the whales at all. You won't see it at all. Just a couple of other things that I just want to throw out for us to think about as we talk about revivals and what we learn about God. Thirdly, God seems to like being sought after, and revival makes us seek God. I want to put something forward that I invite you to hold in tension. We are all familiar with such verses of seek God while he can be found, draw near to to, uh, to me and I will draw near to you. You know, Psalm says, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there is any who understand and who seek God. Deuteronomy says, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. You will seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. All aware of these biblical invitations and sometimes we, we respond and we know God's nearness and yet sometimes when we, we quote these and we desire his nearness, he can seem to be a, a million miles away. One of the lessons of the, of the Welsh revival is that there is something powerful, yet inexplicable, unexplainable in the role of seeking God diligently that brings about something of his presence and his manifest power. Clearly, it's not that God is narcissistic, but I think there is something at work here. How many of us who are parents and uh, we, our kids, you know, maybe it's a Christmas or maybe it's sometime, oh, can I have this? Can I have that? Can I have the next thing? Can you get me this clothes? Can you get me this game? If you're parents, you hear that. You know that. And if you've ever been a child, you're guilty of it. And, um, and, but so often we, we can go back to our children and say, well, let's have a talk here. If you do this, then we'll talk about it. If you tidy your room, or if you come and do some chores around the house, if you do something, then we can negotiate. That's how our answer comes back. And we're not doing it in order to get free labor, but that's an additional bonus. We're not doing it just to annoy them, that's an additional bonus. We're doing it to see how, how much they really want it. That's what we're trying to see. Well, how much do they really want that they say they can't live without this thing? And we just set them a little test. We just set them a little bit, hey, let's see, maybe it's just a passing fad, but if they come through and they really diligently do what they do, then perhaps we, we will chat further about them. We do that to our children, not, not to tease them, but to gauge determination. If you ever read about the Welsh revival, that it's swept everywhere throughout the valleys and the pasture lands and the nation of Wales, then that is not true. If you ever read that in a book, you can throw it away. One of the distinguishing phenomena of the Welsh revival, that it was only experienced and it only went where people wanted it to go. If you cried out for it, if you sought the face of God, if you were hungry for it, it went. It went to chapels, it went across Wales. However, if a community, if a chapel or if a clergyman spoke against it and said, we don't want this in our, in, in our experience, Spirit of God didn't go there. So I'm not really, I know how to do this, but the Spirit of God would sometimes go through valleys and sometimes it would completely miss out little towns. Sometimes it would go completely away from the track that you were thinking it was going because there was something about seeking God that triggered off God's presence. As I said, he's not narcissistic, but there is something in revival that makes us seek God and God wants us to seek him in an incredibly powerful way. Where it was welcomed and where it was wanted, it went. 
I don't know what this fully means for us, and I don't have a theology for it yet, and I may never have a theology, but there is something about truly seeking God with all our hearts and with all our minds that he responds to. Evan Roberts, 13 years, he prayed for revival, started at 13 and 26 it came. And that is a characteristic throughout history of people seeking the face of God and revival following with people were diligent. Something about us seeking God creates, creates that environment, creates a conduit for him to do whatever he desires to do. Does this mean that revival is dependent on us? Not at all. Do we have a role in ushering it in? I think that we have a role to play. Not quite sure what it is. But if we're going to be true to revivals, then there is something of that duality that needs to take place. And lastly, as I bring this to a close, I keep looking at my watch because I can't see the clock there. It's not that I'm trying to get away from you because there's a brand new light there and I'll be squinting so I have to look at my watch. Whatever God is doing in our situation, we are always a part of a bigger picture. This just brings a sense of perspective of what goes on in our everyday life, whether good or not so good. That whatever we are going through, there is a big picture into which our story is being woven. So often I, I have to sit with people and they are so caught up in their own world that they forget about what God is doing around them and in the lives and the lives of other people around them. Friends, whatever is happening in our situation, there is a bigger picture that God is doing across the world, and that should excite us, and that should thrill us. You know, just at the same time, or just prior, or just within 18 months of the Welsh revival, these following revivals were breaking out during the Anglo-Boer War, 1899 to 1902, one of the bloodiest wars of its time, when tens of thousands of people died in South Africa, there was an incredible outpouring in the prison of war camps, and thousands of people came to know Jesus. Phenomenal revival, and one of the biggest out revivals in Japan happened at the same time. In India, just under 10,000 Hindus were converted in a short period of time, just prior to the Welsh revival. I'll just jump to the last one. Simultaneously, just after the Welsh revival, I should say, Azusa Street revival, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Congo, Malawi, etc. Incredible picture of what God was doing across the world. And the one that I should have put last, World War I. That didn't happen until 1914 through to 1918. And the Welsh revival impacted a whole generation. Numbers, stood, uh, numbers stacked up in church, people, the, people didn't leave. The revival went on for quite a period of time. It is widely believed that many of the young men that got saved in the Welsh revival in 1904, 1905, died in World War I. That he had taken the time before one of the worst and most horrendous times in the history of mankind to prepare a people to meet their God. They say that probably as many as 100,000 Welshmen who'd been from the valleys of South Wales where this predominantly happened lost their lives in World War I. Just incredibly sobering. You know, the Welsh revival was only part of what God was doing across the world at that time. And I just think that's always good to have a sense of perspective for us as, as Christians and as a church. Musicians, please come and join. We're going we're gonna to sing, Here is Love Vast as the Ocean. Just before I conclude, you know, it's worth noting that um, Wales have only beaten the All Blacks three times throughout history. <laughs> and one of those occasions was 1905. 
And there are some people in this congregation this morning sitting at the front to my right <laughs> who think that for Wales ever to beat the All Blacks again, it's going to need to be a supreme act of God. <laughs> and it's not going to happen for another 112 years. <laughs> but we'll wait and see. Personal thoughts. I think... Just this guy just been unwell, just to, to your right, to my left. It's going to be okay. Roger's been unwell for, for, a, for a number of months, and he just collapsed about half an hour ago. So we'll be taken care of. You know, personal thoughts. Are, revivals thrill me. The thought of revival absolutely excite, excites me, but it also makes me uncomfortable. Also makes me nervous, if I'm very truthful. Because if we are truly to see revival, then we're going to have to go through some stuff that we're not going to like. It's going to change us. I don't know what it means for you, but I know it'll mean for me in the sense of that the response to be a person more and more of holiness and a person of prayer. So I'm excited. Oops, sorry. I'm excited and I'm challenged at the same time that there is a, a price to be paid. And I'd love to think that I'd want to pay that price. I'd love to think that we'd all be willing to pay that price. One of the best writers on revival is a guy called Leonard Ravenhill. And he says this, when there's something in the Bible that churches don't like, they call it legalism. Friends, holiness is not legalism. Seeking the face of God through prayer and being a person of prayer is not legalism. It's being who God has called us to be. And I just pray that as a Welshman, God would visit my nation again, but I pray that he would visit wherever I am and that as an individual, I'd be willing to pay the price, whatever that cost is, so that he could use me and use us as a conduit for revival. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.